Hey, property managers are the lifeblood of your company. If you don't have a good one, you're, I don't care how amazing your pro forma is, it won't be a success because you've got the wrong manager company. You know, if we're the quarterbacks as the, as the asset managers, they're your, your offensive line. So if you don't have a good offensive line, it doesn't matter. You can have Tom Brady as the quarterback. He's not going to do anything. It is a common saying amongst real estate investors that you make money when you buy, not when you sell. While this catchy phrase has value, it fails to convey how easy it is to lose money through poor property management. Whether you self-manage or hire a professional, it is important to understand how to navigate the common pitfalls and challenges with rental properties without losing your shirt or your mind. That's why you have tuned in to Maximizing Your Property Value, the Apartment Owner's Guide to Operating Rental Properties as a Successful Business. I'm your host, John Stiles, real estate agent and team leader of the VIP Real Estate Group at Bridge Realty. As a current multifamily investor and former property manager myself, I understand the headaches and difficulties of keeping an investment property from becoming a money pit and time sucker. It takes a solid business plan, it takes tested systems, and it takes key team members to actually find success. So let's take a deep dive and maximize your property value. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Maximizing Your Property Value. I'm your host, John Stiles, and I'm so happy that you have joined us today. I'm also excited to introduce to you today's guest, who is Joseph Bramante. Joseph, thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, John. Glad to be here. So a little bit about Joseph. Uh, Joseph is the co-founder of Triarch Real Estate Partners, a wholly integrated multifamily investment company with the goal of acquiring over 20,000 units in the next 10 years. Joseph graduated with his bachelor's degree in civil engineering with, from Louisiana Tech University and spent five years working for ExxonMobil in their capital project division. His multifamily real estate investing started in 2011 when he purchased his first multifamily property, Sight Unseen, all while working as a business team lead for ExxonMobil in Papua New Guinea. Shortly thereafter, Joseph joined a local real estate education club where he met his business partners, Carrie Brenneman and Deborah Newsom. Together, they grew a portfolio of over 1,100 units and have increased the NOI on average by over 80% within 48 months of every property they have acquired. So, Joseph, can you do us a favor and fill in some of the, maybe the holes in the background and let us know, you know, how you got to where you are today? Yeah, so uh, we've kind of really specialized on the, the value add, uh, the true heavy value add deals. And my first deal, you know, really just kind of fell into my lap as far as the value add component. Um, bought that one sight unseen, as, as you'd mentioned, and was still living abroad. And I, I didn't have the luxury of all these podcasts that your listeners have today. I had to do it the old fashioned way. I bought a couple of books, uh, read them, taught myself through reading those books. And that was it. I had a broker. We went, found some deals, bought that first one. And, uh, three months later, I'm, I'm stepping foot on it, on it for the, the first time and went through a real roller coaster on that first deal. You know, six months into it, we're negative cash flowing. We're 85% occupied. We got asbestos on the property. We're 
uh, we've got fraudulent insurance and then uh, and capital off, I'd lost my job. So I was in a really bad spot on that first deal and luckily was able to turn the whole thing around and the solution was to just go big and do this massive 30,000 per door renovation when our original budget was only about 3,000. So kind of fast forward after some uh, much success on that first one, uh, started repeating that on other ones. So then I kind of got a, a taste for doing these big value-add deals and went on to do, a, I think the next deal was like a 22,000 a door rehab. Then we did a 15,000 a door and then gradually started getting smaller. And then most recently, now we're doing a 37,000 per door uh, current uh, renovation. So we've, you know, I don't want to say we've mastered it, but we've certainly got some significant skills on on that heavy value add component that um, you know I find that most people just just don't don't they just don't do it. It's uh, a lot of times you hear people say value add or heavy value add, and they're they're quoting numbers like ten or you know twelve thousand a door, and that's nah, I wouldn't really consider that value add compared to you know we're going in and moving walls and adding washers and dryers and new roofs and adding central ACs. So we do the bigger stuff, but uh, also those are becoming harder and harder to, uh, to come by, you know? Yeah. That makes so, sense. so anyway, that's, that's how, when you hear that last bullet point, it increased the NOI by 80% on all the deals you require. Well, that's how you do it. You do those large value adds. And there are a couple of those that made up for the bulk of that 80% that really skewed the average up. And so that's, you know, that certainly helps. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, you don't get those kind of stats by, by doing normal class, you know, B renovations where you're just going to put some paint and resurface. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I'd like to learn more about, you know, the process that you went through when buying that property site unseen. Uh, first of all, did that seem uh, normal to you or was that really a stretch for you? Um, how did you go about it? Did you, I'm assuming you didn't have a, a Zoom call to uh, to see the property. You know, how did it work out? Yeah, I would use the word process very loosely in this <laughs> in this definition because I was uh, I, there was no process. I, I went and I bought it. I didn't know what due diligence was. I, I knew I knew that due diligence was just a portion of of the contract. That was just a, a phase of the contract, and so I you know, I didn't scope sewer lines. I didn't do environmental reports. I, I didn't do most of the things that we do now. I didn't do a lease file audit. I, I just bought the property and I, I don't even know what I did for 30 days, to be honest. I didn't, wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. Uh, it was mostly, uh, just probably working on securing the debt, which nowadays typically you've got the debt, uh, at least you've got it narrowed down to a handful of lenders before you even go under contract typically. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was, everything was just kind of, you know, shooting from the hip as they say. And I didn't really know what I was doing, got into that first one. And also just caveat that, that it was 2011, it was 25,000 a door cap rates were, you know, over 10%. Mm-hmm. So I was, uh, fortunately I was able to make those kind of mistakes and, and, and be here to talk about it. I, I do that today and it's, I'm not here to talk about it. So yeah. that would have been the end of my career. Hmm. Yep. Different, different times, different markets here. Um, and you talked about how the, uh, the value add you were planning was like 
was it seven thousand dollars a door but it turned into 33 something like that yeah it was originally just supposed to be three thousand a door it's 26 units and the three thousand the bulk of that was replacing the new roof so like we we knew the roof's gonna get we knew that the roofs needs to get replaced because the seller told us they need to get replaced uh, and I think also our PCA, a property condition assessment, told us that new, the roofs need to get replaced. So, you know, we, we did that right. Um, and we correctly budgeted that. So we got some bids for that. We'd also, um, the other thing we did right was we bought it in a really good location, which allowed us to recover from all the mistakes we made in the beginning and, and allowed the property to, um, it, it allowed it to, uh, be able to tolerate a 30,000 per door renovation and, and allow us to get the rents that we, uh, we needed to have the property be a success. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's great that you were able to make, you know, make a great situation out of a bad one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm glad. And I think I read, you mentioned it briefly and I think I read it previously about you that you had fraudulent insurance. Can you tell us about that so we can know how to look out for that? You know, I, I don't really know how that fully came about because I was buying it through a broker. And so the, the broker was a reputable company and I, I don't think they were multifamily specific. And so that one of the tidbits I would say is make sure you're using a somebody who only does multifamily or, or at least at a minimum that they've got a lot of, they come highly referred. They've done this a couple of times. Um, I, I would my opinion is that the multifamily industry was still maturing back in 2010 and 11 when I was getting my start. And so it wasn't nearly as defined and mature as it, as it is now. But uh, so I, we were using a broker and then the company that he had hired. So the actual insurance company uh, that he purchased for us turned out to be fraudulent. Okay. Um, so it wasn't, uh, we got, some money back like two years later so that brokerage ended up going after this uh, i think it was the brokerage or somebody they hired an attorney some sort of way legal action was taken against that insurance company and we did get a refund check for the the bulk of it back like two years later okay but that didn't really help us in the present moment where we were in the middle of hurricane season which is you know, a pretty big deal in South, the South, in the South region. And it's very difficult to get an insurance policy during, in, during hurricane season, if you don't already have one in place. Yeah. So it's, it's one thing to have a policy expire and you're going to another, uh, to a new policy, but something else, if you're currently with no insurance and you've are, and you already own the property. So now it, it just opens up a lot of, questions for the insurance company and you become a high risk uh, policy for them. Yeah. Cause they're probably worried about uh, the time, you know, if there were any claims that resulted from a time that you were uncovered or exactly not covered. Yeah. So, okay. So well. It's a, it's a tricky industry. Um, and yeah, I learned a, a decent amount about it. Got my feet wet and I'm no expert by any stretch of the definition, but I, uh, I do know that uh, going forward, not having insurance on a property is a very bad thing. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, and it's good to know, you know, you've recovered from that or you, you know, you used all that as a learning experience um, and you've taken down several properties since. Um, 
So what I want to kind of get into in this podcast is some of the processes and systems that you've developed in order to, you know, do well in your company and things that we all can learn from and apply to our own properties um, and to maximize our property values. So first of all, um, you know, I'm really intrigued by the idea of increasing the NOI on average by over 80%. Um, and you've mentioned, uh, you know, there's a couple of properties that skewed that uh, percentage, but, but nonetheless, um, what are some strategies that you look towards um, in order to accomplish that? You know, how do you achieve that? Yeah, so we stick to value-add properties. We don't go after these marginal deals uh, for a couple of reasons. One is it gives you an extra security as far as, you know, if you're going after a marginal deal just to close a deal, which, you know, some people will do just to, you know, collect fees and whatnot. What happens on those deals is if they're off by even a little bit, you know, if it was, you know, a 16% IRR deal and they were banking all their uh, upside on just doing, uh, uh, just increasing the rent and there was really nothing they can do physically to the property uh, to make it significantly better than the competition uh, to command those rents, uh, that would be a very marginal deal. So if you're, so when they get in there and they make a push for the rents and they don't get them, you just shot the entire pro forma for the next five years into your, you know, they won't be able to perform. So we typically go after deals that are going to be where there's either some physical component that we can do where we're spending typically at least $10,000 a door uh, to get it up to par with the competition uh, or there's some sort of operational efficiency. So we've uh, a recent example of the operational efficiency one is where we bought a 2015 construction property uh, just last year and it was located right next to another one of our properties. So the operational efficiency for us was to decrease the, uh, the payroll by having a single manager overseeing both properties. And then we're also able to share the maintenance staff between the two properties. So our operational efficiency was decreasing the expense on the, on the payroll side, which was a you know guaranteed item to happen. Plus there were a few other items that we were gonna do just on the kind of other income side, finding other ways to generate income on the property. So I think, uh, those are also some of the, the tricks that we do is not, it's not only just on the interior, but you, you know, you've got this whole list of things you can uh, add to a property to increase its revenue. And whenever we look at a new property, we just go down our list of proven uh, upgrades that we can do to increase the revenue that we've done on other properties. And we we check the ones that this one doesn't have and we say, okay, well, we're going to do these. And, uh, and then we build that into the model and that's, that's kind of how we uh, are able to further show upside on, on the value add uh, portion. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. I'm kind of seeing two paths that you're referencing. One is the physical improvements to the property. And then also you've talked about it, you've referenced it as the operational uh, efficiency of the property. And, uh, you know, having, uh, payroll that's that's unnecessary obviously that's a huge expense um and just having um you know proper systems within the management team i think will be really important as well yeah uh, do you have any uh, more comments about that there 
I would say another one, which is, which is a very challenging, challenging item is the marketing. Um, a lot of times you'll come across properties or sorry, maybe not a lot of times, but it's not, it's not unheard of to come across properties that would just have these huge marketing budgets or the opposite. They they're not spending any marketing dollars and they don't understand why their rent's not going up. So you really want to critique the marketing line item, figure out, okay, well, what are you spending money on? And that's when it really pays to know your market and to know what works and what doesn't work. And, um, and, and those, that kind of knowledge, it's really, it just comes with experience. Yeah. Um, I know it's, you know, there's a lot of companies that do marketing out there and you can very easily spend a lot of money on marketing and not get a whole lot of results for it. And we've, we've been down that road. We've, we've been through numerous marketing companies and we've spent tens of thousands of dollars with numerous companies to try and, you know, we're always testing companies out, try and find an edge and find a way to generate more traffic and get people through the door. And um, so by having gone through all that, when we see those companies that either didn't work or whatever on new properties that we're looking at buying, well, what's, you know, it's an easy adjustment for us to make. It's okay, we're going to do, you know, make these adjustments to the marketing line item. And sometimes it's a saving and sometimes that's an increase. And the times that it's an increase, it should also be an increase on the revenue side from what we've experienced on other properties. So that would be the other thing you can look at is on the marketing uh, budget. Okay. And then one other item is uh, on the kind of the, the admin, the, the admin line item is kind of the, the catch all for expenses. And you will just see all kinds of weird and crazy things in there that sometimes uh, are, are just, you know, if you're buying it from a mom and pop operator, they're going to have stuff in there that really shouldn't be in there. That should be way below the line. That's truly just their cost. And when you find those items, that's that's great because that's truly just extra revenue for you uh, because you will be able to easily go in there and cut that out. Um, but you know, for us, we 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 use a a VoIP telephone system, which is significantly less expensive than a you know standard kind of hard line phone system, which a lot of the older properties would have. That's not going to move the needle a lot. You're talking maybe a couple hundred bucks a month, but all these little things that you can do across a property, you can shave off money here and there. It all helps uh, towards the greater goal. Yeah. Um, and then the other item I would say is that is the uh, the management software you use. So we're we're in a unique situation that we were one of the first companies in in I believe Texas, but for sure Houston that was using Resmond. And so because of that, we got grandfathered in with a, a great great uh, management agreement through with them. So our cost to operate properties on a per unit basis is a lot less than others on the on the management side, and that can be a big. I mean, that's that's a, that's thousands of dollars a month that typically on most properties we're looking at. So we've got an edge there that that we look at, and so I would that one may not be applicable to most other operators or people getting started in the industry, but there is going to be some component of that if you know that they're using a very premium management software because some sales guy made a good pitch to them and they signed up for it and they bought every little bell and whistle and not really needing it. And then you're able to go in and with a, a different manager software or maybe even just the same one, but completely scale it back to only use, uh, only have the features that you needed to have. Cause you can, you can spend a lot of money on management software if you're, if you're not careful. Yep. That's a good point there. Um, I want to go back briefly to the marketing point 
so as you have tested different options, different strategies, what have you come to as, you know, your go-to marketing strategy um, to be cost-effective and, you know, effective at getting people in the door? You know, this is a, a common debate that we'll have in, internally because my, my two partners have been doing property management for 30 years. And so they're very old school, about 30 years each. They start off as leasing agents back in the 80s and they've been, they've been doing this for a while and they've seen every little thing come and go. And, you know, we're always pushing the envelope. Uh, sorry, I'm always pushing them to try and every little marketing thing that comes across my desk. And more often than not, it's just boots on the ground that typically wins. You know, it's them getting out there with the old school flyers and getting in front of people that brings in more traffic than everything that we've tried. And uh, it's just, it gets hard to justify the cost, you know, the cost per lead and cost per lease um, when you're on these items that you're spending, but, but, but they're important. Um, I know apartments.com has, you know, we use them. We, we've actually gone back and forth with them because they've, you know, we, we got away from them for a while and then we tried a bunch of other stuff. Now we're going back towards them. And because now they got these other programs, they've got a, I believe it's called the diamond program or diamond plus, which for us is useful and that we can use it to get leased up. Uh, basically it's, you're paying double what the normal cost is, but you're guaranteed to be in the top three. Uh, of the list. So that's, that's unique in that you get a lot of traffic uh, from that approach. Um, the other thing we're doing is we're working on having all of our properties uh, on a single website. So you now we're going to have our Triarch uh, website with all the properties there as its own kind of listing service um, versus each property being its own website. Uh, so individually, those websites uh, are not nearly as strong as a single website with all the properties on them. Um, because also you're, you're able to um, uh, keep it all in house as far as the, what the resident or future resident would see versus when you're doing like an apartments.com, they're showing the resident every property around them and giving them other ideas and whatnot. And so they're almost working against you in, in some regards. So you got to, be a bit careful with that um, but one of the things that we do have a good bit of success with because we do have a heavily uh, hispanic profile on a lot of our properties is we use a uh, service called uh, green sheets and there's another one I, I forget the name of it but it's a free publication that uh, caters to the hispanic market and you know i'm sure other markets have a similar service but but again it's it's hard copy it's print uh, materials and it's that old school style of marketing that still is still works, you know, it still works very well. And I know there's a lot of a big push for people to go online, do everything via social and, and whatnot. And maybe we're just doing it wrong. I don't know. But for us, we've tend to have the, the better results just by, you know, boots on the ground and to our credit or my management team's credit, you know, for this past uh, collection with all of the COVID and everything going around, we've collected over 95% collections across uh, 14 properties. So we've done okay, and I can't really fault them so much. They've earned definitely earned a lot of kudos for that. Um, so I uh, so so I uh, have a hard time uh, 
justifying these other marketing companies when again they're just doing the boots on the ground and seems to work just fine yeah yeah i think this marketing discussion could be you know had in any business i know for me as a real estate agent here in the minneapolis minnesota area um you know obviously agents are going a lot with their marketing online social media but there's nothing that compares to you know, having a, a one-to-one conversation with somebody in person um, or maybe talking to somebody on the phone, you know, there's just a different level of connection that you can have with somebody and it can go a lot long ways. Yeah. And, and I would say resident referrals are, are a good source as well. So I think people need to, you know, use your residents to help bring other residents. It, it works and it's still going to be a lot cheaper and uh, than, most other marketing programs are going to be using. So there's there's a whole suite of tactics that are, are really just the old school way of doing. And I would I would encourage people to while while researching all these new marketing companies, don't forget to check out the old ones that still work. Yep, makes sense. Okay, well, let's go back briefly to the topic of your renovations. And you know, obviously, you want to avoid spending too much money how do you decide what your budget should be uh, when you're initially looking at the property? And and secondly, kind of how do you manage that on an ongoing basis to make sure you're not having too many overruns? Yeah, absolutely. So for the first, for the first part of your question, I would say you start with the end in mind. So you really have to know what the end objective is for that property. We've got some properties that the end objective is we're scraping it or redeveloping it into some sort of mixed use development. We've got two like that. Um, we've got others where it's a, we get in, we renovate and we sell in three years. Um, so you really have to know what the outcome is and uh, not over renovate. And the way you know, the way we've discovered how to not over renovate is uh, unfortunately just through experience. So by doing these rehabs and you're able to quantify, okay, when I do this, I get this much rent pop. And I'm gonna do this, I get that much rent pop. Um, and then knowing the kind of service life you have uh, of, of the building itself. So for example, we're doing a 37,000 per door renovation right now. And uh, one of the things that we're doing uh, that we're actually challenging our own cell phone is we went in with the plan to do a complete repipe and we're currently repiping the whole property, which is about 5,000 a door, uh, about a million dollars just in replumbing. Uh, but what we're discovering as we're going through this is, you know, I'm looking and inspecting all of the pipes that are being cut and removed off the property and looking on the level of corrosion and, and clog and sedimentation they have inside them. Uh, and then also talking with other plumbers and, and whatnot who aren't uh, on the project and incentivized to say, yes, let's do the project. Um, and so what we are exploring, on, at least on the plumbing side, is we really need to be replacing this plumbing and what is the service life of the plumbing and and what i've discovered through my own research is that galvanized piping actually has a service life of 80 to 100 years mm-hmm. so i know everybody talks bad about galvanized piping and it's really going to be market dependent what kind of water that they have in that in that municipality uh, whether it's in hard water obviously is the worst on pipes mm-hmm. but what we're discovering through our own research is that um it's okay to have a 1970s or 60s property with galvanized piping. I've got one that's a class A property with the old original pipes. Um, now you're going to have 
uh, it, so it really just depends on what is the profile you're going to. If you're going to an, a really high-end profile like we are, there are certain um, components to, I guess not components, but you know, there are certain things that that profile is looking for. And I can tell you that if, when they turn the water on, if, they, if the first little bit of water they get is brown because of the pipes being old, not that there's anything wrong with the brown water, but you know, that initial, when you turn on an old house, when you turn the water on an old house, that initial bit of water tends to be a bit brown. Um, they wouldn't go for that and you would probably get a lot of negative comments on it. So you've really got to know who the profile is for what you're, you're targeting. And, um, and most profiles would be okay with having that water, but for us, we're going for really high end. So that's kind of an internal struggle we're having is do we, do we not do this full repipe? Uh, and, you know, cause right now we're doing PEX, which PEX is great, but it's expensive. Um, the other thing I would say is on the other stuff that we're doing. So for example, one is resurfacing. So we're a bit different on the resurface because I've done a lot of resurfacing and we are, and we still own those properties today that we've resurfaced. And what ends up happening is you spend the money for a, or you don't spend the money really because resurfacing is cheap. And so you do it because it's cheap and you're really saving a lot of money from actually replacing the counter. So you save the money up front by doing the resurface. You define what you mean resurfacing. You're talking about the countertops or what else? Yeah. So resurfacing is basically a high-end paint that you put on top of the counters. So it's typically when you see that speckled look where it's a formica counter, which has the nice rounded kind of corners, non-stone uh, that is compressed fabricated wood or compressed yeah, composite wood. Um, typically it's a laminate when, it, when it's installed new, it's just a laminate counter. And then as it wears and it gets cuts on it, then the alternative, the, the cheap fix for it is to resurface it, basically paint it. And they, they'll, they'll put some speckle in it so that it looks like kind of simulated granite, but it's still just that same Formica counter below. But the problem with that resurface is it only lasts typically one, maybe two turns. So meaning you're gonna have two uh, leases for that one turn, for that one resurface and then you got to do it again. And so now each additional time you're doing it, uh, you're not paying for that out of capital dollars, you're paying for that out of operational dollars. And so we've already experienced this on other properties that didn't have resurfacing and then we resurfaced them and we saw the operating expense go up on them, you know, two years later, three years later, because now we're having to resurface all those counters over again that previously were not uh, resurfaced. And so had we just replace the counter in the beginning with a new Formica counter, it would have been okay. Or even better, just replace it with a granite counter or some sort of cheap stone, which you know you don't have to do granite. There's a lot of hard stone materials out there you can use that are that look good and are are cost effective, but still more expensive than Formica. So I think that you know, one of the mistakes people make is they they will go for the short term and not think of, well, yeah, in the long term, in three, four years, I just increased my expenses, which decreased my NOI, and so it hurt my, my overall objective, because you know, the NOI over the, um, the cap rate over the NOI, or the valuation approach, will have a much greater impact on value than saving a little bit of money up front on the capital dollars. 
Yep. And typically what we see on the price difference is it's about three to four times the cost to go with uh, a new counter, new Formica counter versus uh, just a resurface. It really depends on the size of the unit, how long the cabinet, so how long the counter links are, et cetera. Uh, and then a little bit more expensive, probably five to six times if you're going with uh, some sort of stone product. Um, but that's, you know, that's just kind of thinking of, okay, well, what is the end goal here? I'm, I'm trying to increase the NOI. So you need to be careful that the capital that you're spending not only has a, a good impact on the income and allows you to increase income, but it doesn't also decrease the, or sorry, increase the expense, thus decreasing the NOI. Cause then they can, they can offset each other. You might've increased the income, but then you just, you uh, offset the expense as well. So it didn't really move the needle, you know, two steps forward, one step back. Mm. So um, that's one of the things we look at. Roofs is another one. Um, I know TPO roofs are very common to replace, but they're kind of like the Mercedes of, of roofs. Uh, and if you're a whole period for us, for example, uh, we, did a, we did one in 2015 where we knew it was a scrape. Okay, the property was uh, a scrape. We're gonna go vertical with it probably uh, once it's finished its life cycle. So we didn't wanna have a roof that's gonna last for 30 years when we're gonna be scraping it in 10. So we, you just gotta make sure you put a roof on there that gives you enough time front, enough uh, timeline to get uh, to the finish line instead of, you know, now we're gonna be scraping it and the roof we have on there is still really nice and good and has a lot of life left on it. So that was, that would have been an example of wasted dollars. Mm. Um, try to think of some other ones. I'll say the cabinets are another, um, a lot of times people, and this gets back to resurfacing, they'll resurface cabinets, which can uh, really actually hinder a property if, if not done right. And so what we do is we tend to just replace cabinet fronts because it's a lot cleaner look. Um, cause your cabinets are the actual cabinet front, meaning the door of the cabinet is what gets the most wear on it. That's what you're constantly reaching and grabbing and touching and cleaning and everything like that. So over, over time it gets the most wear and to do a, a resurface on it, it, um, you know, the cabinets will stick when you close them, they'll stick and they'll pull the paint off the, the box whenever you open them. And so what, what we tend to do, again, depends on the property and the profile. What we're trying to do is we really try to, uh, if we're going to do anything to the cabinet, we try to at least replace the fronts and not, uh, and, and not repaint them because, it, again, the repainting doesn't last as long. Uh, what, what we will repaint is we'll take off all the fronts and we'll paint the boxes. Uh, we've had a lot of success of just painting the boxes and then putting new cabinet fronts on there. But we'll really try not to paint the cabinet fronts and sometimes as an upgrade if we take over a property that has painted cabinet fronts we'll replace it with new cabinet fronts because it just looks better and then I would say the last uh, value add that we do which again is a bit more on the expensive side but washer and dryers I think you can't uh, credit enough the value of adding a washer and dryer to a unit and you really need to go out of your way to try and find a way to add washers and dryers especially in today's demographic I mean we're you know, current renter profile and population is a bit spoiled. You know, they're all, you know, millennials. They come up with their parents. They've had everything. And now you're trying to ask these, these uh, this profile to go and use a, a laundromat. Come on, they've probably never even seen a laundromat before. And now they're moving into this uh, these properties and they don't have a washer and dryer in their unit. And 
So I get that it's expensive and I would say just really work on uh, bidding it out to as many people as you can uh, to find a, a good GC that can install it uh, because it's it's a complex installation. It's got a, both a plumbing and an electrical component to it. And sometimes on these old properties, the, the breaker uh, isn't large enough and you have to add another circuit just to accommodate that washer and dryer because it you know, requires a lot of electricity. So for for those installations, I mean, it's it's going to be your bigger expense. It can be, you know, as as high as five thousand a door um, total total install, including the appliance, um, and as low as fifteen hundred. You know, it really just depends on where you're at, what the what the price is. Um, other things you can do is uh, you don't necessarily have to buy the washer and dryers. So you can you can lease them from a like a appliance company. And then they will then uh, be completely responsible for all the maintenance on that equipment. And then you then charge the resident back for leasing the washer and dryer. Because sometimes, you know, sometimes residents do have washers and dryers. It's not as common, but sometimes they do have washers and dryers. Uh, and so you don't necessarily want to force it on them all the time. But um, it's it can be a revenue generator for you if you're leasing it for... 30 bucks and you're charging it back to the resident for 40, you know, you've, or 50, whatever you've made 10, 20 bucks uh, per month, just on adding that washer and dryer. Plus you've got some inherent increase in the rent just because you've got washer and dryer units. And so if they're, they're looking at your property versus three others, and you're the only one with washer and dryer, there's going to be a significant, um, uh, a, a significant, uh, reason or significant uh, chance that they're going to lease your unit over the others because again washers and dryers are you know they're almost a necessity these days yeah well I appreciate all those those are a lot of great examples of some specific uh, things to look for when you're doing a renovation and also even just typical turns you know whether or not you're going to resurface something or replace it um, and it it sounds like it, you know, it takes a lot of knowledge and experience as to, for example, how, what is the life expectancy of something, of a certain product? You, you mentioned the pipes, for example, um, or what is the lifespan of a resurface? Um, if somebody is not super familiar with these details, what do you think is the best way that they can educate themselves so that they make the right decision at their renovation? Um. Well, I mean, I'll just tell them. I mean, a resurface is going to last you uh, one to two turns. Uh, but for other items, yeah, that's uh, talk to a GC. Uh, ask them, you know, I think that's a question that's not asked, you know, often enough. So much of the focus is, okay, how much rent increase can I get for this? But then the other question is, okay, well, what is the lifespan of this, whatever I'm installing? You know, or, you know, how many turns can I expect to get out of this? So we've seen it a lot with flooring. You know, a lot of people have already switched to hard flooring because of that very reason. It's um, a lot more durable. Vinyl planks very commonplace now. You can go in and you can install a complete vinyl plank system and it's a little bit more expensive up front, but you're not changing out carpets anymore. So, uh, and then the replacement on those is, you know, if you get a scratch on one plank, you just rip it up, put one more plank down. You're not replacing the whole floor. So, Really, it just comes down to talking with your GC, knowing what's available in your market. And the items that you're really going to be talking about that, in my experience, have the kind of that uh, 
that life component to it that you'd want to consider is, is the resurfacing, is the roofs, uh, is going to be your drives. If you're redoing driveways, you know, you can do a cheap overlay um, or, uh, sorry, it's not overlay, it's called, a, um, I forget, basically they're just, they're just uh, repainting it almost where it's black again, resealing it, sorry. They can do a reseal uh, of an existing asphalt and that, that, you know, they can talk to you about, you know, how long it'll last. And depending on where you're at, it'll last longer than others. Like for us in Houston, we have a lot of heat that summer can really, really wear out an asphalt. Whereas up north, it might be different. I don't know, I'm not a, no expert, but I am a civil engineer. So I do know that uh, uh, the, the environment will have a different effect on the different uh, concretes you use. So you'd wanna look at, at those different things. Um, and then wood fences, I'd say is another, a lot of times it's, you know, when you're doing an exterior paint or you're doing, a, adding wood fences, you know, you wanna say, well, what's the lifespan for this? How often am I gonna be going back and replacing this? And, you know, if you're using uh, treated versus untreated wood, you know, we, we embarrassingly, not, not for us, but for the owner, they built this guy, that 2015 property we bought, they didn't use treated wood around the window frames. And so we're, we're walking and we're looking at all the trim and all the trim is rotting. And we're like, this was built in, this was built four years ago. And why is there wood rot within four years? Because they used the wrong wood. And it's just like that. If you're cutting corners, you're not using the right type of wood for your projects. And I've seen this on other, on actual rehabs where people have done a rehab and it looks beautiful, right? It's gorgeous. The best rehab you've ever done has a nice, has a whole lot of nice wood accents on the exterior but they used the wrong wood. It wasn't treated wood. And now they're getting ready to sell the property and it's all rotting. It looks like crap. And so now a new owner is going to have to go in and replace that wood. So it's important that you're making the right choices, especially when it comes to wood, when you're doing any of these uh, kind of decorations. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I want to shift the conversation a little bit here to the management side of the business. And, and that being, you know, as a owner, you have the choice, of course, to manage a property yourself. You could hire a third party property manager, or you could kind of build your own management company within. So uh, what, what route have you taken with, with those options? So here's, here's my thoughts on that. I, I know that, uh, so when I got started in, in 2011, actually formed a company and, uh, or at least the framework for the company in 2012. And we, officially became a company in 2013, but we were, as far as I knew, we were a bit pioneering in that we brought management in-house by joint venturing with a company that was in its own right, a third party manager company. So the way it worked out is I was forming my company at the same time that this manager company, my, my two partners had broken off from a much larger manager company and decided to do their own thing. And so just very fortunate that our paths crossed and that the timing all worked out. And so we joint ventured together. So they still did their own thing and I did my own thing, but on, on projects, we had a joint venture agreement to GP deals. And so we were, you know, I was giving up equity to have a management in-house, so to speak. Um, and then later on, we officially merged fully. Um, but so we went that route. And the reason I went that route, instead of trying to be the expert at property management, is because property management is one it's one it's hard i mean i know people uh think that it, it can be easy but 
you're, you're dealing with people's personal lives, with their living space. There's a lot of rules and regulations around it. And depending, especially as you go across the country and you try and go in other cities and states, they've got their own special rules that apply. Um, and just the, the, uh, the headache that comes with dealing with property management, it's a very time intensive um, industry. And also from a, from a profitability standpoint, it's typically a marginal business. If you've got a product manager company that's making a lot of money, they're probably doing something not right. You know, they're not supposed to, they're either probably not hiring when they need to be hiring. And so they're over, they're kind of overstretched um, or they're just probably charging way too much. So who knows, but typically it's a marginal business. They're, they're not huge profit makers for you. Um, and so to go into that myself, uh, I just, one, I just didn't really have the inclination to it. Uh, and, and the other is, you know, it's not my skill set. So my skill set is on the business side, is on the underwriting side, is kind of the big picture uh, side of the industry. And so I was, you know, looking for properties to buy and heavily leveraging my my in-house operational uh, team to vet our own underwriting and my own underwriting assumptions to make sure that I'm not coming up with some crazy ideas that, you know, like increasing rent $200 and doing this rehab over 12 months and, you know, but only dropping vacancy by 5%. So, you know, you, it's really important that um, even if you don't have operations in house, that when you're doing any kind of pro forma, you've got a trusted manager company that you're using um, to vet your own assumptions because they're, they'll tell you point blank, this will work and this won't work. Um, but again, back to just a caveat that there are management companies out there that are hungry for business and they're just going to be yes men. They're just going to tell you yes to everything that every crazy idea you tell them like your pro forma and you got to watch out for that also. So it's, you know, it's, it's a dangerous world out there in syndication. You, you're, you've really got to be kind of careful and, and, you know, every direction you go, there's, there's, you know, somebody out there trying to take advantage almost, but you know, that's, that's the challenge of the industry, right? Yeah. Well, that's a, a neat approach that you've taken. You know, it's, it's been, in, you know, an integration of having ma uh, management in-house, but, you know, not really having to do much of it yourself because you're focused on your skills and, and passions while uh, leveraging skills and passions that your partners have. Yeah. So, and, and don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, you know, we still, I'm managing the operations side. We have weekly reports that they're coming to me and, and I do. So jokingly, my, you know, most of, it's, most of the arguments that we have as a company are typically when me, Joseph, tries to start doing operations and I, I come up with these great operational ideas. Sometimes I, I see other podcast guys talk about, you know, things they're doing. I'm like, oh, wow, that's a, that's a great idea. And I go and try and pour, you know, push this on them and, they're, and then they remind me of, you know, why they're so good at what they do. And they're like, no, this won't work for that reason, whatever. And, um, but typically the rub comes if I get to be a little too aggressive and, 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 and just push this idea. And sometimes it works some, but then sometimes it doesn't. And I'd say I'm, I'm kind of like 50, 50, uh, success rate right now with the different things we've tried. And, uh, but they're great. They're flexible. They're at least accommodating to say, okay, fine. We don't think it's going to work. We'll try a crazy idea and we at least try it. Um, so there is a dialogue that's going on and uh, between the asset management and the property management uh, companies 
uh, as far as you know keeping up with what's going on because I'll say that's one of the things that you've got to be kind of aware of is that when you when you partner with people that are very experienced you know one of the downsides of that is that they're going to be hesitant or uh, they're going to be likely to just continue doing what they've been doing for the past 30 years. So they're going to be hesitant to try new things. And that's where you as the asset manager, or even as the, whatever your position is, if you're the younger guy in the group, uh, you want to stay out in the forefront and keep aware of what new technologies are coming up and constantly just prodding them and pushing them to, to try and do different things. Um, and typically they're going to be receptive to that. And the other thing is that, Again, as, as I mentioned earlier, property management is very labor intensive. They're super busy all the time. It's, you know, it's, it's got a very heavy accounting uh, component to it. So they're spending a lot of time just reconciling accounts, um, managing people issues. Right now, they're, they're managing this COVID crisis. And it's a very hands-on uh, kind of management style you have to do on, on property management. And so they don't have a lot of time necessarily to look at all these new technologies, let alone to try them. So part of my role is kind of like the, the, the chief technology officer, you know, I'm going out and I'm vetting some of these things. Cause I've, you know, I've, I've developed a decent amount of operational experience over the years, just by being around them. And, you know, for the last 10 years and, and seeing all the properties we've gone through and I know what works and what doesn't work. And I've heard all the stories. And so I'm able to, vet different technologies from the operational side at least one or two stages of vetting before i present it to them to say hey let's i've, I've looked at this for you know a couple of weeks a couple of months had a couple of conversations with them i think it'll work for this 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 reason i've already thought about this 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 reason why it won't work whatever so i think that you know that's kind of the other thing that we do uh in, in my role i do in my role not just uh you do your thing and I'll do my thing. I'm very much uh, involved. Yeah. You know, so I personally have a background in property management and so I can concur that it is kind of a thankless job. It's, it's nonstop. It's constantly putting out fires and responding to concerns. Um, so you're right. It can be difficult for a property manager to take the time that's needed and not that they don't want to, but it just, you don't have the time to research research new options or new opportunities. Um, yeah. so it's good to have both things going on and, and people kind of doing the research and trials and be able to report what's, what's a good option to change to. So, yeah. Hey, your property managers are the lifeblood of your company. If you, if you don't, if you don't have a good one, you're, I don't care how amazing your pro forma is. It won't be a success because you've got the wrong manager company. They're your, you know, if we're the quarterbacks as the, as the asset managers, they're your, your offensive line. And so if you don't have a good offensive line, it doesn't matter. You can have Tom Brady as the quarterback. He's not going to do anything. <laughs> That's great. Um, so are there, um, how do you have things set up in your company as far as routine meetings and reporting so that you can make sure you're staying on the same page and monitoring some kind of key performance indicators and making sure that you're headed in the right direction. Yeah, so we've got weekly reporting on our properties and that's, that's really the, the heartbeat of, of what's going on on a weekly basis. Um, and then we've got uh, our, our, on the monthly reporting, we actually, uh, that's more of the product manager side. So they're checking 
uh, on the month reporting, we're checking for variances across our budgets and what we set. Um, but then a real heavy push is done on the quarterly reporting side. So on the quarterly reports is where we go ahead and we, we reforecast every quarter for the end of the year. We look at all the metrics. Because um, I think on a, on, a, on a monthly basis, you got to be careful because you could have a good month or a bad month and then you, you are um, inspired or, or panicked into do, making some action when really it was just a bad month, you know, necessarily. There, there's nothing you could have changed or done differently, uh, but now you've just gotten yourself all wound up over one data point. And so that's why we tend to put a big emphasis on quarterly reporting because now you've got three months. You can see a trend of something happening bad for three months. And, and again, it also depends if it's, I mean, you have to use your own judgment as far as if this is a major item like a water line broke or if it's just, you know, the kind of the, just the noise of property management. So you have to, uh, on a monthly basis, decide what's noise and what's a waterline break. Typically, you're not having many waterline breaks that often. Uh, and that's, I'm using that as an analogy. Um, and so that way on a quarterly basis, you know, we've got trending data that we're looking at as far as we're, we're to see how the, the different expense items are trending if we're gonna hit our forecast for end of the year. Um, so that's, that's what we're doing on a quarterly and then on a monthly, like I mentioned, we've got uh, weekly reports and we've got all of our weekly reports tied together. So all the properties tied together for one master report, which then uh, we've, we've come up with a scoring system, which we've used to rank the different properties. So on a weekly basis, our properties are ranked from one to 14 and all the managers will get to see where their rank is. So we've got, you know, complete transparency internally with the managers just to form a little bit of competition, just so you know, nobody wants to be at the bottom. And, uh, and we also track how many weeks that they're at the, the, different, the different spots. And we, use, uh, we set bonuses based on, on those. So we've, we've tied some compensation with, the, with the, just the normal competitive nature of our, of our team uh, to, to get the job done. So I think for us, Weekly is where we spent a lot of our effort is getting that weekly report right. And I would say, you know, areas where I've seen people go wrong on this is, you know, there's a common phrase that says what gets tracked, what's, what gets tracked gets managed. And that's true. But also there's another phrase that says not everything that uh, can be tracked should be tracked. So just because you can have this data point and, and I, and we do uh, fee management as well as owner management. So we're managing our own account, but then also we, we do have a couple of owners that we manage for on a you know, typical portfolio basis. And so we've seen uh, their version of management reports that we don't, we don't necessarily agree with. We think you know, they're, they're tracking a lot of stuff. Uh, in general, people track a lot of stuff that doesn't really bring a lot of value. And all it's doing is it actually hurts your property because now your property manager who's on site is spending hours doing this report when she could be leasing units. So I think it's very important that you get the weekly report down to just the basics. Like what do you really need to know and really be honest with yourself. And that if I didn't have this data point that I'm asking the manager to do, would, would that be okay? Would that be the end of the world? Um, so I can tell you like for us, like we track occupancy and vacancy and we track, um, we track uh, the trend 
which is uh, for us, that's, that's a more important uh, tracking than occupancy or vacancy because the, the trend uh, is typically a 30 or 60 day trend depending on what the leasing agreement says, uh, says. But it gives you a, it's kind of a leading indicator that says if you get no more leases for the next 30 or 60 days and then everybody who's given you notice to move out and everybody who's given you notice to move in does what they say, then this is where your occupancy will be in 30 to 60 days. So it, it just kind of foreshadows, okay, this is where we're going. And so if it's the trend is up, then that's good. Versus the trend is down, then that's bad. And you better spend some money on marketing and get some more leases. So we, we focus on trend a lot. And then you've got your collections, which are important and delinquency. Um, and then, you know, we, we track renewals a little bit, but it's not as, you know, I've seen people really dive into renewal tracking a, a lot, which, I mean, I, I don't get it personally. Um, and maybe I'm missing something, but I just feel like you're you're kind of wasting your uh, your time there, your manager's time by going these really deep dives on on renewals. Um, and then the, you know, I think it's important to track your your marketing, you know, where are the leads coming from? You know, you're spending, we, we just spoke earlier about marketing. Okay, well, you try a new initiative, you need to make sure you put that new initiative on your weekly report and you can track every lease that comes in from that initiative. Um, and so that's kind of how we've, over the years, determined what works and what doesn't work because it, you know, we can see the results. We're tracking uh, where, it, which kind of uh, leads we're getting from which sources. So that, that covers the bulk of it. Um, so I think, I mean, there's a couple others that we track that I just can't think of right now. Uh, others, there's one that we, we also track, you know, the, um, the rent that we're charging per units. And so, you know, we've got our own little pricing module that we use to help, uh, review on a weekly basis. Okay. What's the occupancy or, or whatnot for the different floor plans. And we will make adjustments in real time to our, our rents for those floor plans in order to maximize the rent. So I think uh, that's, that's something you can actually uh, lose a lot of money if you're not actively tracking your floor plans to see, okay, this, this floor plan A is just really rocking. It's 100% occupied, so I need, to keep, I need to increase the rent on that one. But these other floor plans are lower. Um, and so I think that's you know, too often we, are, we look at the occupancy as a whole instead of the occupancy as a by floor plan. So when you look at it as a whole, maybe as a whole, you're only at 90%. So you think, oh, I can't push rents because it's, it's marginal. But maybe of that 90%, floor plans A, A and B are 100%. And those are just, you know, the, the, they're just leasing like hotcakes. And so on those floor plans, maybe your rent is actually too low. So you're able to bump the rents up on, on those a little bit. And maybe you can lower the rents on the others. So it's a constant kind of process, you're constantly tweaking the, the rents in order to, uh, to just read the market dynamics of what's going on. Yep. Yeah. I appreciate that. There's a lot of good things to be tracking. And it's a good point to learn to know that there's things you don't need to track. Um, I know for my, for my business, again, um, there's so many data points I could be tracking, but I'm, I myself try to put my emphasis and focus and time on the ones that I can control for one and uh, the ones that I think are going to move the needle the most in my business. So, yeah, that's a, that's a great point, John. I think uh, 
controllable and uncontrollable expenses, you know, you can track the weather if you wanted to as well on a weekly report, but you can't control the weather. So why are you tracking it? So I think that's um, too often you, you get caught into these, these circles. These, we're all such data hogs, right? We just want all this data and then you get all this data and you, you got data overload. You can't even process it all. And, and at the end of the day, it just comes down to the basics again. So, you know, I'm, I'm with you there, John. I think, uh, so I'm curious, what, what do you track? You say controllable. Um, well, again, so I'm, or was there, was there anything that you're tracking that's different than what we're tracking? Um, no, on the, on the rental property side of things, um, I think it's pretty well aligned. I mean, you've got a lot more properties than I do, and I'm currently not managing for other people. So the scale of my personal portfolio is much smaller and it's, it's harder to kind of have the tracking of, of a small portfolio be meaningful because there's not much. You, again, that you can change when you've just got a, a handful of units. Um, on my business side of things, what I can control is, you know, I have goals related to like the number of closings that I would have um, or the volume of, of sales that I would make, but I can't really control those. What I can control is the number of times I reach out to somebody or the num number of people that I'm reaching out to in order to build relationships in order to lead to those transactions. So that's mm -hmm. just, you know, a little bit different business, but the same kind of point. Yeah. Very cool. I think, um, so when you are doing your weekly reports, what, uh, are you using any software? Are you using a, a custom report you've created like an Excel, for example, or are you using, some prefabricated report that comes out of your manager software. Yeah, um, I have what I call a scoreboard and mm -hmm. it's just on an Excel spreadsheet. You know, I've put in the, the numbers that matter to me. I've put those in there and it, I find, you know, softwares are, are nice. I've, I've used a number of different softwares and tried things mm -hmm. out, but I like how I can manip manipulate, you know, Excel yeah. and uh, kind of, again, control it. Yeah. Uh, so it's a good point on the scoreboard. We've got a scoreboard as well that, that we actually discussed during our, our leadership meeting in the morning. So before our property uh, weekly meetings, we have our leadership meeting in the morning where we, on Mondays, where we talk about the company as a whole. So we're not really talking property management, we're talking triarch. And two of the metrics on the scoreboard are on related, related to properties. So we're checking um, number of properties that are less than 90%. So the answer should be zero every time. And then the, um, the other one is on the, I think, uh, the Google rating. So we actually put a good bit of emphasis on getting Google ratings and trying to make sure that they're all above a certain amount, uh, a certain score. Okay. Yeah. Neat. By the way, just briefly, I, I really liked the idea that you said about having a, some internal competition between your properties. Mm -hmm. That's neat. I mean, we all, uh, not all of us maybe, but most of us have a natural uh, desire for competition or, or need, or I don't know how you describe that exactly, but um, a re responsiveness to competition. Um, so that's neat. Um, you know, maybe not right now because we're kind of running low on time, but sometime be interesting to learn more about how that looks. So sure, man. But um, yeah. Well, listen, we do need to wrap things up here. We're getting a little long, but one final topic I wanted to cover is how do you determine when it's the right time to sell? And I know 
as a syndicator, you often decide that up front, you know, as you're potentially raising money and you need to tell your investors, you know, kind of an expectation of what, what the hold time would be. And then I don't know if you have any properties that are not using investors, but even for yourself, you know, I'm up here in the Midwest where we kind of have a mindset of buy and hold forever. Um, not everybody does that, of course, but that's kind of the going in mindset. Um, so again, how do you approach uh, determining the right time to sell? Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, it's a lot of that is preset in this indication from the beginning. So you, you, you're going into this deal with the plans of selling it in year five or year seven. A lot of that will also be dependent on the type of debt you have. So if you've got five-year debt and the loan is coming due, uh, typically it's a balloon loan. Uh, sorry, balloon loan. Balloon loan. Um, and so typically that'll also dictate of uh, when you're going to sell or refinance. So if you're exiting the market or if your loan is coming due at a certain time and you're, you're you know, ahead of that, probably six months ahead of that uh, or six, nine months ahead of that, you're talking with different lenders. You're trying to say, okay, what is, what, how much refi proceeds could I get? And if the, you know, in real time, you're doing that calculation and say, okay, well, I can refi and I can make hundred percent return. And then my ongoing cash flows would be, you know, 6%. Uh, or I can sell and make 200% return and that's, and that's it. And maybe we do a 1031 to some other property that we did make, you know, 8%. So there's, there's a combination of what's available in the market to buy. Um, when your loan, one, when your loan's expiring, because that kind of sets it for us. We also will choose our loan based on the timeline we chose on the syndication. So if we say it's a seven-year deal, then we're going to get a seven-year loan. We're not going to do a three-year loan on a seven-year deal, typically. Um, so we'll choose the duration on the syndication, then we'll choose a corresponding loan. And then when it comes time to exit, we'll then give the investors the option. We'll say, hey guys, we can this deal has gone great. The last seven years have been amazing. The property has got, it's been absolutely perfect. Uh, maybe there's some upside that we can gain because there's some competition that's come over the years and we can, you know, do, you know, such and such upgrades and bump the rent some more. Um, and so we can, we'll formulate a new business plan at year seven. And it could include several options. One could be just a refinance and continue to hold. It could be a refinance, invest some money back into the property and kick some money back out to the investors, or it could just be an outright sale. And then from, if it's a sale option, you could be looking at 1031 to another property or everybody could just be going their own way. So it's, you know, you've got those options uh, on the ladder and a lot of it will depend on what the initial terms were on the syndication. Uh, so that's kind of one avenue which applies to probably 80 to 90% of the time. The other time is when things don't go so great. And I've had this happen before where uh, this was like on our, our third transaction. We bought a deal. We, we thought it was going to be great. Uh, and then it just ended up being a, a lemon. I mean, you've heard of a car being a lemon. This deal was a lemon. It had a ton of internal issues. And we were for three years, we, had, we were constantly re-injecting the cash flow back into the deal just to fix all the deferred maintenance items. Um, and so the investors were growing very unhappy. We had done maybe one distribution in three years. It was not, uh, the deal was not going very well. Uh, we had also spent over a million dollars on capital dollars that we had 
planned up front. So we were in a bad situation and the market was doing really well. Fortunately, this was 2015. Um, so we went and we said, okay, let's just sell. So we sold the property, made 200% return. And, you know, overnight we became heroes again. So that was good. Uh, but for the three years up to that, we were not uh, liked very well as the GP. And so that was a situation where we got into this deal. It turned out to be a huge lemon um, and um, ended up selling early. So those are selling can, can be a, a parachute as a way when you get into a deal and things aren't as what you predicted, you can typically pull, uh, pull your parachute and get out of there and offload to somebody else. And I mean, it's rare you'll lose money these days. I mean, I think it's, you're, it's, you know, you're probably not going to make a lot of money. Um, if you are in those situations, we're very fortunate, uh, in that situation that we did do an upgrade. We did increase rent a lot. We were just struggling with the cash flow uh, because the property was just constantly breaking down on us. Um, but there are situations where you can um, you can exit early and just take a minor uh, penalty basically for exiting early. And, but you also got to check on your loan. So we had a three-year loan as well. So that kind of came back to that first example. We were in the situation where our loan came due and our original plan was to refinance it uh, after the bridge loan and go into permanent debt. And we said, nope, we're not going to do that. We're just going to exit right now. And so we exited right now and, uh, and came, you know, turned into be, uh, went from, uh, losers to heroes. So. Well, that's a great, uh, comparison and parallel of two different options there. Mm -hmm. Um, to turn the question a little bit, when you are ready to sell or getting ready to sell, maybe six months or so in advance, what are some things that you do in order to make sure that the sale is gets the most that it can yeah really you want to start working on the sale 12 months in advance um and then at that point because remember a buyer is going to have a trailing 12 so he's looking at your expenses and everything for the last 12 months even though he may only look at your income for the last three months he's gonna look at all your expenses for the last 12. so it's 12 months out you're really going to look at okay let's clean this up let's Let's burn off the loss to lease. Let's really tighten things up. Let's decrease our expenses. Let's kind of go on a, um, on a diet, so to speak. Let's cut all the frivolous things that we don't need and really just do everything you can to jack up the NOI, at least for that, that uh, 12 month duration. Um, and you're, you know, you're almost kind of just flying on, on just bare minimum, you know, just cruising on the bare minimum you can just to get across the finish line. And then uh, to get the biggest price you can. And that's, so those are some of the things you're going to do. Now, the details will be up to the individual property. I don't know what the property is. Every property's got, you know, they've all got those frivolous things that they can cut out um, and save money on um, if, if they wanted to, to, to help push things across. Hmm. Yep. And I, obviously the challenge is to not cut too deep that, you know, the property suffers or the operation suffer or the, tenant retention suffers. Um, yeah, that, that's a good point. Cause if you, if you do it wrong, it's, it's a balance, but if you do it wrong, you can end up in a situation where say things are going, you know, you're, you're skirting by for nine months and then, you know, on months nine through 12, things just blow up in your face and then you end up with a huge expense item and income takes a dive or whatever, which is the absolute worst thing you want to happen when you're about to sell the property is to have it go through, a dive like that three months out from hitting the market. So 
you know, it's, it's certainly a balance and, um, but it, you know, it's, you know, you don't overnight decide to sell a property. It's a 12 month uh, process. I mean, it should be a 12 month process. Right. Yep. Don't want to be in that desperate situation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great. Yeah. I, um, again, really appreciate all of these insights you have shared. I think you have, you know, shared a lot of nuggets of information that hopefully people have pulled on. And if you, you know, it, this is, I think, an interview that people should go back and listen again because there are different things from uh, the renovation plans, uh, cost of, or the life cycle of uh, different products that we put into our properties and uh, things that we track on a monthly basis, weekly basis, you know, lots of different things that you shared, Joseph, that I think are valuable. Um, before I let you go here, I do have a couple of small questions just so the audience can get to know you a little bit better. Sure. So number one would be, why do you get up in the morning? Um, because I love it. You know, I love what I do. It's, you know, when I grew up, I, I've always had a fascination with buildings. Uh, I just have, I was originally supposed to be an architect. And then and after a semester of that, I said, nope, I don't want to do this. So then I went to civil engineering because I figured if I can't design the building, I can at least hold it up. That's what civil engineers do. I, I, I got a major in structural design. Um, and then three months before graduating, I uh, made another kind of about face and went uh, to the oil industry because Exxon was in town. And, um, you know, the, the math calculation was pretty easy for me. I was being offered this much to go to a consulting firm and this much to go for Exxon. So I went to Exxon and made the money and, and as soon as I had enough money, I bought my first property. And now we've, you know, I've, I've, I've been through the, the ringer. I've been through kind of the lowest lows of my life. And it was real estate that really pulled me through and have, you know, has created this life for me through real estate. And I love that we're able to kind of impact so many people's lives and by providing a, a basic need. Um, and then just the, you know, it, it's never a dull moment with, with property management, as you know, I mean, you've, you are, and you are coming across all walks of life. Every type of person there is, they find their way coming through an apartment complex and you get to experience all their personalities and, and all their glory. And I, I enjoy getting the, sorry, I don't, I don't personally get them, but I, uh, I, can, I, I do occasionally listen to the voicemails that are left uh, for some of the property managers and it, is, it, it makes you smile sometimes. It's, it's, a, it's a challenging uh, industry on that side of things. And so I, you know, it's just cool that we can, uh, impact so many people on, on that side. And, um, otherwise I just, you know, I love it. I got this big dream to, to grow a big portfolio and, to you know, I feel like, uh, you know, there's something permanent about, about buildings, you know, there's a hard, they're a hard asset. They're not going anywhere. And, you know, I, I really just have this aspiration to, to grow this, uh, this this lasting company that'll be around for for hopefully decades if not centuries nice nice well uh question number two in this is what's a person or event in your history that was monumental and changing and creating who you are today hmm. i would say my grandparents you know they were i've had i had a bit of a rough upbringing I uh, don't want to really get into it, but I'm just saying I had a bit of a rough upbringing. And so I had a lot of people in my life during different times of my life that, um, 
that were parental figures to me. Um, and so during in the period of my life when I was kind of exiting college, or sorry, exiting high school, going into college, and then transitioning from college to my career, they were there for me. They were supporting me. They were, you know, they helped me get into college. They helped me, um, you know, kind of control my, my, my ego a little bit, I guess, and, and really just kind of keep me focused front and center on what I need to accomplish. And, you know, I've always had a great respect for them and, and also anybody who's, you know, of, of, of a certain age, you know, who's got a lot of years behind them. You know, I, I just enjoy listening to, to people and their experiences because it's, you know, the best way that you can grow as individual is to just take the experiences of somebody else. I mean, it's, you know, you're learning from their lessons and they're giving them to you for free. So take them. I mean, why, why would you want to go and relive their mistakes? So, um, um, so my grandparents were, were there for me and they helped me a, a good bit. And so very, very grateful for them. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah. It's good to have family that's, uh, that cares about you there. So wonderful. Okay. Well, my last question for you is how can people get in touch with you if they'd like to learn more about your business? Yeah. Um, I would say LinkedIn is probably the best option. Uh, Joseph Bermonte, I'm, uh, pretty active on there on a daily basis. Uh, the other way is you could just shoot us an email at info at triarchrep, T-R-I-A-R-C-R-E-P.com. Um, and then last, they could check out our website, www.triarchrep.com, which is actually in the works of getting redone. So hopefully we'll have that done soon, but um, there's still a lot of good content on the current website. Okay, well, wonderful. Well, again, Joseph, I appreciate your time this morning. And I know that our audience will really enjoy hearing all these tips and, uh, you know, your experiences that you shared. So thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. All right. And to our audience, uh, thank you for tuning in. Um, if you got anything out of this, why don't you go ahead and comment below, you know, whether you're watching this on YouTube or maybe you are listening on iTunes, you can go ahead and give us a rating and review that really helps us know that you're out there. It helps other people know that there's great content here and uh, helps help us get the word out so that uh, we can grow the show. So thank you so much. And we will see you on the next one. Thank you. Take care. The opinions shared on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be taken as a solicitation for representation or investment in any specific offering. Please consult with your financial, legal, tax, and real estate advisor before making any investment decisions. John Stiles is a licensed Minnesota real estate agent with Bridge Realty. Thanks for tuning in to Maximizing Your Property Value, the apartment owner's guide to operating rental properties as a successful business. If you're considering scaling up, downsizing, or right-sizing your real estate investment portfolio, it's important to know how to determine your property's value in today's market. That's why I've put together a free ebook for you called How to Calculate Your Investment Property's Value. To get your copy, go to www.realestatestyles.com forward slash value. Now, if you found any value in today's show, be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, YouTube channel, and podcast through your favorite podcast player. All the links are in the show notes. And would you do me a big favor? Help me get the word out about this show by sharing with your friends on Facebook and LinkedIn. And lastly, we appreciate your five-star rating on iTunes. I really appreciate you and wish you the best in your real estate investing career. Signing off, I'm John Stiles with Bridge Realty. Make it a great day.